Our first reading is from the book of Joshua, chapter 5, and it can be found on page 219, 219 in the church Bibles. Joshua, chapter 5, starting from verse 9 through to verse 12. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the fourteenth day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. New Testament reading is taken from Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 to 3, and then moving on to verses 11 to 32, and it's page 1048 in the Church Bibles. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, 
he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Thanks be to God for this reading. Let's pray. That though this story is very familiar to us, Father, you would speak afresh and anew. That you would teach us new things. Speak to our hearts by your creative spirit. For Jesus' sake, amen. So there was once a family that had 28 sons. And one of those sons went to the father who treated them all as a unified whole and said, give me my share of the inheritance. So the father sat down and began to divide the property between them. But even before the division was agreed, the, son, the one son, who couldn't even agree with himself, didn't like the way the negotiation was shaping up. He realised that he had squandered his opportunity on wild thoughts and fanciful expectations. He worried that he would be le- all that would be left of his economy was a field of pigs. So when he thought about it, he said to himself, even my father's servants, Norwegia and, the Can- and Canadia, have food to spare, and I might be left starving to death. I'll go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned. I need more time. And after that, I might need a little bit more time. And then if I can come up with the right indicative vote, like Norwegia plus plus or Canada plus minus, you could treat me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But we don't know yet what kind of reception the son will get. What kind of outcome will there be to the predicament the son has got himself into? Will there be grace and welcome as a son? Will there be a grinding humiliation and an enforced departure? Or will there be some kind of long, ongoing process of frosty, resentful coexistence? Will there be any produce in the land of Canaan when we get there. Fortunately, the story that Jesus told doesn't leave us in such a state of unknowing. 
But neither, when we read it in its entirety, does it bring us to a satisfactory and reconciled conclusion. At the end, there is still division between the family, division between son and father, a division between the brothers, and resentments are powerful and strong. But the story Jesus tells us here in Luke is one that invites us to imagine ourselves into it, to take each character in turn and imagine what it's like to be them, to live in the other person's shoes just for a bit and see where it leads us. Indeed, that is the key to understanding what Jesus is saying. It's in the use, the misuse, and the failure to use the God-given gift of imagination by the people in it. And it begins with the misuse of that imagination. In verse 12, the younger son says to his father, give me my share of the estate. It's very negative imagination. The son imagines what it will be like when his father is dead and he inherits the estate. Well, maybe most of us who stand to inherit anything might have had thoughts like that. But this son stretches the negativity. He goes on and begins to imagine what it's like if his father were dead now. And he comes into his rightful inheritance. I mean, imagine what a, a modern young boy might make of it. All those experiences he could have. All those things that he could do. All the freedom that it would give. If only this old man wasn't in the way. And the misuse of the imagination is that it's all about him. It's only about him. He's imagining his future, his freedoms, never mind anybody else's. And that's the great danger, isn't it, when we imagine that it's all about me. We can see how the resentments build up. We see how we begin to construct in our own minds a story that justifies the way we feel. We can see how the relationships become strained and broken by the selfish imagination, thinking it's only about the way we imagine it to be. You see, those of us who voted to leave the EU imagined what it would be like to leave on our terms. It would be better for us. And the mistake we made was to imagine that everybody else who voted to leave voted in the same way for the same reasons. See, it's not true that nobody knew what they were voting for. They knew what they were voting for. It's just that they all voted for different reasons. For some, it was sovereignty. For some, it was the NHS. For some, it was immigration. For some, it was the armed forces and the prospect of a European army. For some, it was the notion of free trade. And the truth is that all those things are achievable. Not all those things are achievable. That's what I meant to say. 
<laughs> and certainly not all together. And so we who voted to leave find ourselves at odds with each other. Cabinets are split. People are leaving the party. People are marching on the streets. No confidence in the government or leadership abound. Who knows? Maybe resentful violence will yet break out on our streets. Well, the son in the story got to that point. Because his selfish imagination, the son enacts emotional violence against his father by asking for his share of the estate. He dishonours his father's position. He dishonours his father's fatherhood. And he dishonours his father's very life by asking to leave with the estate. Some of us know the pain of leaving in difficult circumstances. Some of us have left churches. Some of us have left marriages. Some of us will have left because we were pushed out. We've left for the reasons of self-protection. We may have left because just the relationships could not be worked out. All of which are valid and appropriate reasons. But this son left in resentment, selfish resentment, and that is always a powerful and violent and destructive act. Let's see how they will get on when I'm not here. The son in the story exemplified it. And perhaps if we are humble enough, we might agree that at times we may have done the same thing in the same way. Well, if the younger brother misused his imagination, the older brother failed to use his imagination at all. We only hear about him at the end of the story. The younger brother has returned in contrition and uh, the older brother hears the party that's going on and when he finds out why it's going on, he refuses to go in and be reconciled. Verse 28 says, The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. And despite his father's pleading, he says, All these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. The man never had the imagination to think that it could be different. He describes his life as slavery and subject to following orders. He never has the imagination to think how it could be if he owned part of the estate, if he were to enjoy his inheritance. You never even gave me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. Well, he could have asked. He could have asked. And the fact that the father had given half the estate to the younger brother was kind of evidence that the father would have given him even a young goat. 
But he didn't have the imagination for that. He didn't imagine his father would have wanted to bless him. And such a lack of imagination meant that he could have no sympathy for his brother, no compassion or understanding, nor did he imagine what his father had been through. The pain of a broken father-son relationship, the worry of not knowing, the anxiety of constantly keeping watch on his return, or even the overwhelming joy of the son he thought he'd lost, was dead, but now has come back. Those of us who voted to remain suffer too from this kind of lack of imagination. We've been warning about the doom and gloom of the finances if we leave. Project Fear has come to be known. We who voted to remain never imagined that there may be things that are more important than the financial circumstances. Things that vote leavers see as more attractive and valuable than the economics. And despite the both major parties saying at the time of the general election that they would honour the uh, result of the the uh, referendum and work for leave, yet every possible variation of leaving is rejected. And those of us who voted to remain are like the grumpy brother who stands on the outside and refuses to go in because the other brother has made us worse off by squandering half the estate. Leaving is still something to be fought against and mitigated, not something to be worked toward and made the best of. And the characteristic of this kind of lack of imagination is righteous indignation. The elder son thinks because in his eyes he has not done anything wrong, he is somehow deserving I was grateful for the intercessory prayer that spoke about us not judging other people. Because this brother thinks that he can pass judgment on his younger brother and he can judge his father too. There's no grace in this elder, judge, elder brother. He'd rather be angry. He'd rather be in the broken relationships with his brother and his father than he would see them put back together. But when this son of yours, he says, has squandered the property, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. This son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours. There's no movement toward relationship there. Both the brother and the father are to be blamed. Who is to blame for the mess? There's plenty of blame going around Westminster at the moment. And there's plenty of blame in the messes of our lives too. See, blame comes from the place of righteous indignation where we fail to imagine how we could have to have anything to do with it ourselves. 
But the father uses his imagination and reaches out to both his sons in this story. We're not told what he felt, we're told what he did. Verse 12, he divides his property between them. He used his imagination to put himself in the son's shoes. What must it feel like to have this old man controlling everything and directing operations? A young man needs to prove himself and take risks and experience life. If he stays at home here, the resentment will get worse. We'll all be unhappy. Maybe the father imagined that this would be a lesson for his son, that in giving him the freedom to leave, there was at least the possibility that in due time he might want to come back. And in verse 20, the father, having let the son go, is constantly looking out for the return of the son. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him. We may surmise that all that time he's looking out for him, imagining what it would be like for his son to be returning. Jesus says he was filled with compassion for him when he saw him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Imagine what the son would need to know when he had left in such a broken way. What would a loving father want his son to know first of all? Love, that you're still loved. You're back, son, and I still love you. I've never stopped loving you. So he runs to embrace the returning son at the earliest opportunity that he may know he is loved. That's one way of interpreting what Jesus said about the the father running to the son. But maybe the father imagined more. Maybe the father imagined what the return of the son would mean in a society where shame and honour were powerful drivers. Running through the streets for the head of a household was a shame. Hitching up your robes to show your legs so that you could run well enough was a shameful act to do in public. But to bring honour to the son the father was prepared for that. He turned the whole thing upside down. No shame was too great in order to honour his returning son and bring him pardon. And remember that Jesus, who told this story, endured the shame of the cross to bring pardon to a broken world. And perhaps most dramatically is the thought that in this returning son, In the shame and honour culture, there was the danger of him being killed by the inhabitants of the village before ever he got to the father's house because they were duty-bound to uphold the honour of the master of the house. And so the father runs through the village to protect his son from the vengeance, from the honour-killing, that was due for him, running through the streets, protecting his recalcitrant son. Well, we didn't leave on leave day, the day that never was. 
And now we have a few more days. Will we find that kind of imaginative grace coming from Europe if we ask more time to reconcile ourselves? Will Mr. Macron have compassion for a son who is in such an internal mess? Who can say? But in, in this story that Jesus tells, the key to how things can be reconciled, the lesson to the grumpy brother and to all those of us who voted leave or remain, it's not just in the imaginative grace of the father toward the son, it's also in the repentant imagination of the son. In his predicament, far away, without resources, without friends, he imagines his life again. But this time, he imagines his life not from his own perspective, but from the perspective of those he's left behind. Imagine his father's household. He imagines the servants who have food to spare, Norwegia and Canada. He imagines the father who he'd wronged and how he might make his apology. Recognising his father's position, his father's fatherhood, uh, fatherhood and his father's life and he turns back. I have sinned against you, he says. He's prepared to live not as a son but as a servant in the father's house. And that's the meeting. That's the meeting in this kind of imagination between father and son together where there is celebration and joy and restoration and true honour. And it's only by using our imagination to see the other point of view will we really reconcile our disunited kingdom and our European disunion. Only then, when we imagine what it's like from the other person's place, will we honour one another. But then, it's only by using our imagination in that way can we reconcile any broken relationship, whatever our mess, those broken relationships in the home, or in a church, or in a workplace, or wherever we find ourselves divided. Let us not perish for a lack of imagination. Amen.